Episode nine of the Punch Drunk, episode ten of the Punch Drunk podcast. This is Patrick J here in Pittsburgh, along with Andy G, as always in Minneapolis. What's up? And we're going to talk a little bit about the Timberwolves' recent leaps, specifically the month of April. Uh, some stuff about Zach Levine, Andrew Wiggins, Ricky Rubio, even Justin Hamilton, and then those we have not seen recently, like Shabazz Muhammad, Anthony Bennett, and others and discuss the Timberwolves coaching situation. So I think one of the, the cool things recently was, this is all putting it in relative perspective, I guess, but was the loss last night in Golden State in which Zach Levine set the Timberwolves all-time record for scoring in a game by in a single game by a rookie with 37 points. He shot uh, 13 of 21 from the floor and played 45 minutes, had nine boards, four assists, three turnovers, uh, was a minus 12 on the night for this worth. But, uh, but I think the big thing was that he showed that he could actually score 37 points in a game. I don't know if we all actually believed that before this or, or expected to see it at least this season, particularly against, I think, what is still the NBA's best defensive team. So I know we both watched the game, I think, this afternoon. It was a late one uh, because uh, last night it was on West Coast time at 10.30 Eastern. So, um, so yeah, I'll kick it over to you for your first impressions, then give you mine. Well, it was another example in a growing sample size now that Zach Levine is a pretty good three-point shooter. Uh, he obviously got it going from outside last night. He hit a few in a row in the in the fourth quarter when he had a ton of his points. Um, but he also blended in three-point shooting with some really strong transition moves to the basket. He had some pretty big dunks, as we know he can do. Um, and also some strong layups kind of going in and around different guys. Um, so he's got to become more of a factor in transition, and it was good to see that happen last night. But the three-point shooting is really what stood out. He hit six threes, attempted ten of them um, on a, in a season when the Timberwolves coaching has been defined uh, in large part by kind of the dearth of three-point shots and Flip's history of not having three-point shots. It's been encouraging to see Zach Levine one way or another getting some threes up and actually hitting them. He's got a really nice rhythm to his three-point jump shot. It, it's really an, an easy-looking shot. He's got uh, uses kind of just the right amount of legs, and the ball just kind of flicks off his wrist. Um, contrast that maybe with like Adrian Payne who uses a lot of legs and some of the other guys on the team where it looks like a little bit more of a process. Levine's definitely a guy where, you know, he can shoot from 28 feet out and it doesn't look like it's all that much different from, you know, maybe some of those shots he takes from 15, 16, 17 feet. So it's great to see him get it going. He put 37 on the best defense in the league. And I think uh, it's, he's showing some things that uh, extend beyond just his dunking abilities. So, I don't know, was there anything specific about his game last night that, aside just that it was a really good one? No, so, I, I mean, so it was nice to see him shooting really well, like you said. I think he continued what we've seen some more of, especially recently. I think in April he's been averaging something that sounds absurd, like 21 points per game. He's been playing a lot of minutes, but so his April splits look like professional 
upper level starter splits for April. Um, maybe if you discount assist to turnover ratio, I mean, he's still making a lot of unforced errors. We saw some last night. He threw away what was at the time a pretty crucial inbounds pass that went for a, a Golden State layup. But, uh, but what I like is that he looks like he's starting to understand sort of when to attack better, both in the kind of transition game, which he was better at initially, I think just because he's got such a physical comparative advantage to most of the people who are trying to run in transition in terms of his ability to, um, you know, to handle the ball, to move extremely fast up and down the court, and then to jump high and finish around the rim. He doesn't always do that. Uh, I think this is one of this, his problems in transition, right, is that he can get up you know, pretty close to the cup and then has a hard time finishing. And we see that in the half court, too. But he's what I think he's gotten better at is not some of the things we'd like to see out of a point guard, which are you know, things like reading defense as well. There was one situation last night where uh, there was a, a missed rotation by Golden State and he got the ball like on the right wing. And there was a gaping hole all the way to the rim. He probably could have jumped from beyond the free throw line and dunked it and didn't even see the gap for about two seconds, uh, by which time the defense had largely uh, recovered. And, and I think he, he drove into the seam a little bit but didn't do it. But those are the kinds of mistakes that we still see made all the time. Uh, but on the other hand, I think that he has figured out to a degree how to attack def- you know, like defenses on terms that are better for him than uh, you know, the things he was trying to do before. So he, I think he's still not strong enough to draw the contact that he needs in order to get to the line at the rate that he, he probably should because he's not a great finisher at the rim. But it would be nice to see if, you know, him doing sort of more of what Andrew Wiggins seems to have learned how to do quite well recently. I mean, he's I think he's been developing it all along, but we've really seen it recently when he's been killing it in April, which has been aggressively body hunting people at the rim and trying to dunk the ball. And he's, I mean, he, I think he's legitimately obviously stronger than Levine at this point, but he's not that strong still, but he seems to have figured out how to kind of gather his body, uh, take off and get himself into a position where it's conceivable that that dunk attempt could be good. Uh, and we don't even really see Zach being able to try that. And Wiggins draws a lot of fouls off of that now. Or posterizes guys like uh, Rudy Gobert, so I think that that's sort of like yeah, you know, it's it's part of the uh, kind of staggered quality of the maturation process we're seeing of these two guys. I think both are getting better. Um, you know, you could look at the numbers different ways and, and make different arguments about whether they whether they really have gotten better or where they are relative to league average. But uh, yeah, I think that the eye test actually does suggest that they're both growing into what we hope at least they're moving in the direction we at least hope Wiggins certainly and Levine it's it's contested but that's that's I think the bright side of it he's he's yeah I think he's an NBA player he's not going to be a bust we tweeted earlier today I don't know if you want to talk about this but uh, about if there was a do-over of the draft you know would he go higher I think the answer is probably yes without a whole lot of analysis of it but yeah, so so I'm you know kind of cautiously optimistic about Zach Levine in a way that probably most people wouldn't have been comfortable, you know, with say three or four months ago. Yeah, well, he's I think his shooting is the thing that's such a cause for optimism because I, for one, had no idea that he was going to be a guy who could shoot forty percent from three point range. I just pulled up from 
his NBA.com stats page, since the All-Star break, he has taken 89 three-pointers in 27 games. So, you know, a little more than, what, three a game or something, and he's hitting 39.3% of them. A lot of those are of the catch-and-shoot variety, too, which is a nice off-guard skill to have. He's been playing more off the ball with Lorenzo Brown and a little bit with Ricky Rubio but when he played for a little bit there. Um, so so I want to interrupt but, you right right here and actually ask uh, the question that's being debated a lot of, amongst the kind of Timberwolves close followers, the, the two, you know, is he a two-guard, is he a point guard question? Yeah. What your position is. I mean, my position is actually a little bit different from, I think, what the mainstream one is, which is that he's a two-guard being forced to play point guard because of Ricky's injuries and so on. I definitely see that point, but I think that he has to have the ball in his hands to some degree to um, to be as effective as he can be because he looks, frankly, pretty um, unprepared to run off of screens and do the things that a guy like Kevin Martin excels in in this offense. For well, better, that's what I would have said. That's what I've always kind of thought too. Um, but I think one thing is it's nice that he's showing that his catch and shoot three point ability is really pretty good. Because if he can, you know, you don't have to be an advanced cutter if you can just space the floor by just being out behind the three line when someone else is handling it. That's usually pretty good, especially with Rubio. Like Rubio doesn't need guys that are just like expert cutters. So if he can, if he can space the floor just by being a threat, plus the threat of hitting threes for him off the catch is something that will open up his own dribble penetration game because everything is easier if you have to be closed out on that's like Steph Curry's thing is Steph Curry's a a functionally very very quick uh capable ball handler because he's an incredible threat to hit threes so when he has to be closed out on so hard you know it's easy to blow by your man and then you got space so if, if Curry wasn't able to pull defenders toward him like that I don't think physically he'd be as good of a playmaker you know what I mean Right. One thing. One thing about Levine that kind of drives me nuts because you see the untapped potential that's still there is uh, is when he's he's in like leading the break, stays in the center of the floor, and he's you know, he's got a nice handle. He's he, he's very well qualified to be you know in that position, and you know that he's got that one burst step usually to his right that he still looks very tentative and employing. So, um, so I, I guess I feel like I still see all of these fast break opportunities where he kind of ends up pulling the ball back, usually doing sort of a, a U shaped you know, curve while he's still dribbling the ball back to set up a half court offense. When it looks like he could take that, you know, we see the, the kind of stars who are combo guards yeah. doing when they've got the ball, which is, uh, which is finding a way to get up to the basket and either get fouled or score a layup. And uh, I guess, yeah, I wanted to ask whether it sounds like you agree, but uh, you know, is how coachable is that kind of instinct? I guess, and um, and and do you see him developing it? Because it could be sort of almost a make or break thing, given his. I mean, he's got really unique uh, comparative advantages, right? So yeah, I've always pretty- liked. I mean, I, I've always been a fan of the attempts that Shabazz and sometimes Levine make when they have that one-on-one transition situation, I think flip gets a little bit nuts with it. Cause flip really doesn't like turnovers and they've both made some mistakes, but you have to let your explosive young players learn how to become automatic on a one-on-one transition play. Because like you said, like, like LeBron is the 
best example, yeah. Westbrook would be like the co-best example. Um, it's not even just those two though. Like Darren Williams in his prime was totally unstoppable when he got the ball one-on-one in transition. I mean, when you and the when you and the defender are running alongside each other, every rule is to your advantage. And if there's any any contact, unless you like you know do like the exaggerated you know, slap him with your offhand move. It's always going to be a defensive foul. And Levine is really unpolished in that area. Uh, it really bothers him when the defender at the last second just backs off. Uh, when in that scenario, one would hope that he would just sort of like gather his feet and just crush it over the guy. But he sort of is in Euro step mode and that gets all messed up when the defender backs off because there's no reason to Euro step against a, against open space. Uh, so you can see some of the gears grinding in his head, but he, he should become a really good transition player over time just because he's got the aggressive instincts and he's got the athleticism. So I, I think those are just sort of some growing pains. Yeah, I thought Steve McPherson put it about as well as I've seen it in writing um, in his recap of today's game, which is um, so, I mean, he was talking about this point guard versus shooting guard issue kind of at the the core, but um but he, but he cited a sequence, the sequence when Levine was tearing up Golden State in the fourth quarter last night. And one of the plays, right, was when I think the, the ball was inbounded off a made basket to Lorenzo Brown. He was running the left wing, basically caught it and dunked over, over you know, I can't remember who it was for Golden State. But uh, he, I think he caught the ball, took one max two dribbles and it was pretty automatic and you could kind of almost see him running the floor like Corey Brewer used to with Kevin Love throwing outlet passes except you know Kevin Love isn't walking through that door so we never see him and Zach Levine doesn't play off the ball that much so uh so I thought Steve's point was really interesting and I hope that they can find again this I think this is a coaching issue largely as much as it is kind of a Levine development issue of how to find ways to to use him better and use him more effectively and efficiently because, uh, you know, again, I think that we're seeing the guy wasn't a bust. He needs to have a role on this team moving forward regardless of what it is and how can we make the most of that. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. Um, so the other Timberwolves uh, rookie, at least the other one that's kind of celebrated, uh, is Andrew Wiggins. Obviously, he's going to be rookie of the year. <clears throat> There's been some a couple contrarian articles that, you know, are always going to be there no matter what the issue is. But basically most reasonable people agree that it's, he's not only the rookie of the year, but the way the award is typically handled, he's a runaway rookie of the year. There's nobody even close in terms of the volume of production he's had. So he's going to win it, but uh, he's actually been playing quite a bit better of late. Well, flip has stripped the roster down to its uh, rookie studs here um, and surrounded them with a bunch of kind of limited players. So they have no chance of winning, but they're really featuring Wiggins more than ever. And you mentioned the April stats. We were both pulling these up. So in April, Wiggins is averaging in six games 24.7 points, six rebounds, four and a half assists, um, 1.2 steals. He's getting to the line 10.3 times per game which I don't know what Harden's is, but that's right around what James Harden's is. And he's kind of defined his whole MVP campaign around that activity. And it's nice to see that Wiggins is hitting 82.3% of his free throws in April because he was kind of more of a 70% guy for a lot of this season. And we don't want him in that Derek Williams zone where we're we're sort of lamenting his one for two uh, 
trips to the line. You mean Derricking? Derek, we don't want him to be Derricking. So Wiggins has been posted up more now than ever. Uh, that's been a big part of this whole season. As everyone knows, when Ricky went down, they just shifted gears to to the rebuilding, and they've been really force-feeding Wiggins in the post. He's And the big thing that he has added is um, – that he's kicking it out for three now, uh, and he's four, the four and a half assists for him is well above his season average. The four and a, in April, he's getting four and a half assists per game. A lot of those are assists for threes too, um, and I'm just trying to pull up his his per game assists uh, at this point are. Uh, I don't know why I can't pull this up quicker, but. Uh, what is he? 2.1. So he's more than double his season average in April for assists per game. So that's nice to see. He's kicking it out for three. Sometimes he's doing skip passes out of the post. He's tall with long arms and he's getting better vision. So he can, you know, he can deliver some of those passes that like, you know, someone like LeBron is maybe the best at. Wiggins is starting to try some of those things too. So last night we saw a lot of guys like Zach Levine get jump shots that you know, aren't normally there the way the Wolves were playing before. Yeah, I mean, so he he's doing all of that, I think, and and more. I mean, it's it's really impressive because he seems to get better almost by the game in terms of adding different things, uh, being able to react to different situations. I think that he's drawing a lot more double teams and attention. I mean, um, it was like a science experiment at the beginning of the season when they were throwing him down low and saying kind of would go at it. And now, you know, he looks like a skilled clinician down there, you know, taking apart defenses and being able to pass out of double teams that he's got and attack double teams, move around. I mean, he's he's really mobile down there. And he's so he's a lot more explosive, it seems. There was that really short period where it seemed like he kind of had dead legs and I don't know what was going on. It probably, probably was it probably was just that, exactly. We should try to find out where their road trip was during that period. Um yeah. because it might be interesting to look at the correlation, but he's second in the NBA in minutes played too. For a yeah, he so he's got it all back, and and I think that for me, the one thing that is interesting about this sort of rise toward the end of the season, despite the losses, is um, is that it's hard to make a causal inference about this. But the thing that's impressed me is that he's gotten better at being able to carve out sort of the alpha role when Kevin Martin is in the lineup seems or at least you know he seems like i think then the other team sees him as the main offensive threat on the timberwolves uh and when there was that very very brief moment basically when rubio martin and wiggins were all playing together uh after ricky came back from his initial ankle injury before he went out again when uh, Wiggins looked kind of like a like a lost dog or something right on offense, and and Kmart was getting his thirty shots a game. Ricky was doing a lot of you know he was Ricky was actually shooting quite a bit, and Wig wasn't really seeing the ball very much. Yeah. and you feel like that is almost uh, you know, again we don't have the counterfactual with Rubio in there to, to know what their dynamic would be like with with Kmart, but I think that uh, we've seen Wiggins able to assert himself beyond sort of the the veteran offensive leader with Kmart there. And I think that he's only going to grow into that role more. I mean, he looks really dominant on offense. Yeah, yeah. I did not expect him to be this good on offense. Yeah. As a one-and-done rookie. (laughs) I I think he largely stopped talking about uh, him and his ball handling limitations. I mean, I think he's improved that a lot. I mean, there are still some limitations, certainly, but... 
you know, he's improved in every facet, I think, of the offensive game while remaining, you know, really high-level defenders. So, I mean, he's he's been everything I could have hoped for and more this season. And I think the, you know, the sky is pretty amazing for him. I'm looking uh, forward to it. The post-up thing that we talked about, how we, sort of, how we started the year off with that and how it looked a little awkward for a while, what I think that's done is it's just put him near the physical proximity to the to the rim so many times that he sort of kind of developed that thirst for dunking where now if he maybe is a little further out he can sort of he kind of like can sense out sniff out the dunks because you know like the thing on Gobert when he just went right at him he wouldn't have made that play in November or December like no no way and but now he's He's around the basket so much. He he knows how to finish there. He likes it, and he's sort of become at home with his top attribute, which is I'm you know he's six eight with a forty three inch vertical or whatever it is. It's ridiculous off two feet, and I mean he's uh, he's trying to use that whenever possible. About the handles thing, you know that's not a non issue. Like we saw with Wes Johnson, how no handles can really hurt a player I mean Wes but Wes didn't have the ability to take that one hard dribble to get past his man which Wiggins does have um and that's a different sort of threshold level of ball handling than having James Harden's back and forth rocker step game because I mean Andrew Wiggins is never going to be that guy but it moves you from being like uh, Wes Johnson to being like Corey Maggette basically which is which is which is something you absolutely want yeah, but I mean, I wouldn't even like put a Corey Maggette label on it because I think um, you don't want there. There's not very many guys in the NBA that you want to trust with the role that James Harden is 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 entrusted to. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like that, he might be like one of three current players. LeBron would be one. I don't even know if there is a third one where you'd be like, okay, spread the floor, give this guy the ball, and he's good enough one-on-one that he'll not only get himself points, but he'll get everyone else the ball too. Because, like, Curry can't do that. I mean, Curry's in in more of a system. Healthy Durant and sort of Westbrook, which is Westbrook I'd put in a different category, but not not like a negative category, just a different category from those three. Yeah. Um, But, like, these guys like, uh, you know, like Kawhi Leonard – Maybe that'd be a little better upside type of role for Wiggins, and Wiggins might even become a better offensive player than Kawhi Leonard. I don't think he's better yet. I think he's more featured right now. But you know, Kawhi's a guy who gets like you know he he's kind of a monster in terms of what he does all around. But that he's not a good ball handler. You know, he's not. He doesn't have like handles in the way we talk about handles. He's he's just a functional ball handler. Like you're not going to take the ball from him, but he's not going to do anything super flashy. He's just going to get from point A to point B, and then he's really athletic, so he'll, you know, dunk the ball hard, but <laughs> yeah, it's, so it's more about being able to use your athleticism, and Wiggins' handle seems to be good enough to where he's putting himself in position to use his athleticism, whereas Wes never could. Yeah, so so the thing that is interesting to me about Wiggins' development, especially with the postgame this year, is um, something I texted you about earlier today, and now, since we're doing this, we might as well talk about it, is... Um, how his, his both, kind of his physicality and athleticism, uh, you know, together are really, really unique in the post, and how that actually reminds me of kind of 
like uh, Carmelo coming into his prime as someone who is just basically unstoppable on the block. And you're starting to see that to a degree with Wiggins. I think he's going to get a lot stronger still. I mean, he's not nearly the kind of powerhouse that Carmelo was, say, like six or seven years ago. But I had always, yeah, I think we had always imagined in our conversations, at least, that I thought uh, Wiggins, you know, sort of ideal offensive upside looking a lot more like um, the kind of finesse, unstoppable game that, uh, that Kevin Durant has. And now I was just wondering if, if you actually see any of what I feel like I'm seeing in terms of possible comparisons. I mean, it, it'll, yeah, hopefully he'll kind of define his own path and be a hybrid of, of both. Like, could you have, you know, a, a better best of both worlds, but um, but what do you think of that, and and where do you see him kind of growing on offense from here? Well, if they play like last night, that was Carmelo Anthony basketball, which is established position just outside the block, get the ball, square up, survey the defense, either attack or kick it out for three. I mean, that's that's the modern Carmelo in New York that's been really awesome. I mean, he was like third or something in MVP voting that year. They won a lot of games. Um, so, yeah, I've, I've always seen a little bit of a Carmelo comparison. I think I wrote about it last summer when we were discussing Wiggins a lot, waiting for the trade to go through. But for one reason, he's, he has that step-back jumper out of the post, which has been a Carmelo Anthony staple. It, Carmelo uses that to set up his crossover dribble, too. He does that one dribble. He squares up, does the back dribble to set up the jumper and then the defender overplays it and then he comes low with the crossover and goes to the basket so Carmelo's got sort of a smoother uh kind of more of a beautiful all-around post game but Wiggins has the athleticism Carmelo never had too Carmelo does something that Kevin Love does too which is he follows his misses he 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 has a good second jump instinct where he rebounds a lot of his misses and immediately bulls right back up with it sometimes he gets fouled sometimes he just eventually finishes but Wiggins doesn't have to do that if he just dunks it so but yeah I, I think the general idea of how Carmelo Anthony has an impact on offense is something that Wiggins should think about and I'm sure Flip probably already has thought about in organizing some of those sets but yeah so I don't know Wiggins is is we're being pretty positive today, uh, ignoring the fact that the Wolves are just blatantly and shamelessly tanking the end of the season out. So there's just a lot of horrible things we could talk about, but Wiggins and Levine are the, the bright spots, and that's that's who the team is focusing, featuring, and investing in right now. So, right. so, um, so let, let's come back to reality then and talk about Ricky Rubio a little bit. Uh, so Ricky Rubio is going to have surgery, uh, diagnostic or exploratory arthroscopic surgery on his ankle, which he injured earlier this season. Uh, apparently he has some lingering pain uh, and doing these kinds of off-season, uh, minor off-season surgeries aren't unusual necessarily. Um, there's an issue of whether the Wolves might have not wanted Ricky to play for the Spanish national team this summer. But um, but what do you make of it? I mean, so so Ricky has been obviously I think the key piece, despite you know the things, the nice things that we've said about uh, Wiggins, the other you know, some of the other nice things that we've seen amid this tanking nightmare. And uh, and so, how do you read the the latest Rubio news? Um, I guess all year long, sort of my mo has been to question the. Um reports about the Wolves' medical situations on some level. Like with Rubio, I've basically been of the belief that he's been healthy 
healthy enough to play for a large percentage of the games he's missed. I think that they have used Mike Penberthy as like his shooting coach, and I think they rightfully believe that the game schedule disrupts that shooting practice, and I think they thought that the ankle injury was good cover for him to develop his shooting, which we saw for a while at least it looked like some progress and then he kind of reverted back to his old form and they shut him down <laughs> so but anyway um with that context i'm sort of geared to question everything i, I think i think exploratory uh surgeries of this type they seem relatively common for nba players um it's obviously playing an 82 game season rubio didn't do that this year but he got injured and just playing that much basketball and these guys wear and tear Kevin Love, if you remember, he had that knee surgery the year that they shut him down. I don't remember even which year it was. I think it was the year he had the knuckles, right? They they shut him down and he had a knee surgery. I can't remember if it was that year or the next. Yeah, I just don't think the when they, when they say like exploratory or uh, clean up surgeries, I, I just take that to mean something that a lot of veteran players probably are going to have a lot of those in their careers. Um and I think Rubio, he probably, you know, he did have a severe ankle sprain. It took, he was on crutches for a while. I don't, I don't question that he should have missed a lot of time, but. Um, we, do I think, we know if it's the Mayo medical staff or whether he go off to Europe as part of his usual summer travels and maybe stop off in Germany to get this procedure done? Uh, they listed who the doctor is. He's out in LA somewhere. Um, I don't really know how the surgeons get picked. I, I think maybe the agents have some say in that because Mayo is never the, the picked one. I, I don't know how their orthopedic people measure up to the best private orthopedic surgeons in the world, but so we're thinking, yeah, most of the NBA's agents have been hanging out Rochester too much. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Mayo's got probably a little too much integrity to be, uh, you know, the the, the trusted source for doing, doing marketing with NBA agents. There, that's yeah. not really their up what they're about. So. So, yeah. Um, but, yeah, I think it could be a cover for Ricky to stay off the Spanish team this summer. I know I'm sure Flip has every reason to not want Ricky to play competitive basketball like that this summer, not only because he doesn't want him to get injured, but because they bought they paid for Penworthy to be, like, his guy, and they need the off season for him. He needs to do some serious work on his shooting, and uh, that isn't that just isn't going to happen if he's doing the national team route again and so, so the big question I think is, will we see Penberthy in the the like annual summer uh, Ricky Rubio kayaking trip Instagram oh, to come out? Yeah, I hope we're done with the kayaking just because even if you know it's fine, every player does some relaxing stuff, but it's just kind of he needs to he needs to put the public. Um, foot forward that he's he's working on his game. I mean, everyone knows he works on his game, but he hasn't reconstructed his shot like he needs to, and it seems like that's the next step, and that's what Penberthy's for. Yeah. So I'm not I'm not worried at all about the this idea that he's having surgery. I think it's probably just something they figure you might as well. You know, they have the resources to do it. I mean, yeah. a lot of people would have exploratory minor surgeries to, uh, you know, work on their various adult age aches and pains if they had just the people willing to pay for it so uh, i i don't think it's a big deal but yeah um yeah so we were going to next talk a little bit about uh justin hamilton the wolves <laughs> mid-season pickup uh you and i kind of have different takes on this um i feel like your kind of natural default position on a wolves like no-name pickup is like <laughs> a dismissive one like you know 
basically this guy is not a part of the future, so I don't even care enough to think about him. Is that fair to say? I mean, that's your default. Uh, not necessarily, because when the the team picks up or could pick up guys uh, who I pray that they will pick up, like Hassan Whiteside, for the last three years or so. Uh, I love those kinds of no-name pickups. The ones that are just uh, like filthy, high, you know, high upside, like you know, pot, you know high, low risk, high risk. But I mean, it's a ten-day contract. Yeah, uh, yeah. I love those guys, and I understand in a lot of cases why they don't go with them. It seems like the team is pretty conservative about who it picks up. I mean, it picked up. You know, it seems like it's picked up and dropped Robbie Hummel a few times, who we both think is a good player. Now he's, I think, a permanent part of the team for the foreseeable future. I mean, we'll see what happens with the roster over the off season. But like, you know, when oh, you know, we don't have any point guards. Mo Williams is gone. Ricky's down again. We go to Lorenzo Brown, who was in camp a couple of years ago. Uh, but they have been shuffling through some bigs, and um, so there was Miroslav initially, uh, and after. Well, so so then uh, we got Hamilton, and yeah, I mean, so I think Hamilton is a he's a fine ball player. I mean, he's he's a borderline NBA player. I mean, he's not. You, you could do a lot worse when you're in the midst of one of the biggest tanking campaigns in NBA history. You could you could go out and, and you know find a worse big. Um, Hamilton looks like a professional. He plays like one. He can make threes. Uh, he rebounds the ball some but i i mean i don't think that he has really anything to offer to an nba team that is going to help them win so he's played perfectly into the team strategy and so as a strategist flip saunders did a great job in finding justin hamilton what do you make of the fact that he has a per of over 19 Mm, nothing really (laughs) i'm a huge fan of the per stat how about that is Wind shares per 48 are like way above the average as well. I'd so probably. God, I'm, I, by the way, I'm on the Wolves basketball <laughs> reference page and it's like just my bringing my computer to a screeching halt. I think because there's 25 players per <laughs> like for on the, on the page. So like, I, it's like just struggling to process all the information on it at once. I'm just trying to figure out where Hamilton ranks on the Timberwolves. So he's second in wind shares to Kevin Garnett and he is, uh, third in PER to Shabazz and Kevin Garnett. Anyway, I don't know. I think Hamilton has actually been kind of a little bit of a mild, pleasant surprise. He knows, he understands defensive positioning better than Gorgie Jang which is alarming in a bad way because Gorgie was supposed to take a big step this year and way, way better than um, Adrian Payne. So if I think, like, if you had Garnett and Hamilton or, or Hamilton and, like, another, like, physically imposing post player, I think you could actually have a decent defense just because he understands where he needs to be. But um, Jeff Adrian being a possible example? I, I, I don't know. I wasn't big on Jeff Adrian. But I know some people were. He worked. He worked really hard. He had kind of the Adrian Payne motor. But I, I, with Adrian Jeff Adrian, I saw no NBA future, really. And when I see uh, Hamilton, I'm like, I, I guess I think efficient scoring blended with positional defense is like, <laughs> I, I think he's better than you do. I think he's not a fringe NBA guy. I think he's just like a bench NBA guy. 
I, I, think, I think we actually both appreciate him for what he is, but uh, we just are looking at it a little bit differently in terms of, of where we are right now with him. I mean, I, the question I would ask you about Hamilton is, would you feel good if he's on next year's roster? Like, and he's, uh, Would you feel good if he's getting even bottom-of-the-end rotation minutes next year? I wouldn't mind. I wouldn't want him starting, but I like second string, I think he's better than a lot of teams second string big men. Yeah, fair enough. Um, so, so during this this run of uh, of April, we haven't seen much. Well, so we haven't seen any of Shabazz. Britt Robson wrote a really nice column about him last week uh, with some interview material, which was good to see because I don't think Shabazz does very many public interviews. And uh, we may have seen uh, in the splits. Let me take a look. Have we seen Anthony Bennett at all during this period? Yeah, we saw him for one game in April. He uh, might have been a couple games. But he he looked really out of shape. Yeah, and so so those I mean are the I think the other key kind of upside pieces, and we know a lot more I think and have a lot more confidence in in um, Shabazz, you know, for obvious reasons. Bennett is the big eternal question mark that we're both intrigued with. But um, I mean, so we can't really say much more about the medical situation other than what it is is that neither of them is playing anymore. Um, but I mean, I guess it, you know, if Bennett could have played a little bit more, or Shabazz, what do you think we'd be seeing out of them? I and mean, we talked a lot about the improvements that we've seen, and and what we think they mean from Levine and from uh, from Andrew Wiggins. You know, do you think we would have seen Shabazz kind of level off and plateau at where he was? It seemed like that was what was happening, which was fine because he was playing really well still. But could he have pushed his game up another notch? with other guys' improvements. I mean, it's like, you know, it's the counterfactual world that we want to be in of knowing what this development effort would have looked like if we would have had kind of all of our young pieces playing the whole season, including yeah. but, uh, but But what do you think we've missed here by not seeing those guys during months like April? Well, it's Shabazz is the bigger one than Bennett just because he's so much better right now. But I, I think it's... Shabazz was the best offensive player this team had for a fairly big chunk of the season. Leads the NBA in points per touch, which tells you all you need to know about what his game is geared around. And it would have been nice to see him and Wiggins share the court to see if they could develop chemistry on things like drive and kick because uh, Shabazz is all about driving to the hole. He's going to draw defenders that way. And over time, it would be nice if Wiggins developed more of a three-point shooting game. So that's one thing we definitely missed is watching to see if Shabazz could open up his court vision a little bit to find Wiggins and to see if Wiggins could work on his ability to spot up behind the three-point line and become a catch-and-shoot player because I think over time he's going to want to do that, um, both from a physical wear and tear perspective and also just the efficiency of three-point shooting. So that hurts. Um, it's been too bad you could probably throw Ricky Rubio in there too, just because we didn't really get to see him mesh with Wiggins and Shabazz. Because if you were going to label this team's core, you know, quote unquote, going forward, I mean, where would you begin? Obviously Wiggins would be one. I think Rubio would be two. And Shabazz is probably three, even though Levine is kind of in our face right now. It's hard to argue that Levine is a better player than Shabazz. He's not. And he maybe isn't even close at this point, even though he had a great game last night. Yeah, there won't be an adjustment uh, to that until the draft night. 
Yeah, and the draft is a big thing because it seems like the Wolves are going to want to have a big man, probably Jaleel Okafor, Jaleel Okafor, or Carl Anthony Towns, um, because they don't have a good young front court player at this point that we can feel good about as a starter long term. Uh, but if, say, they get the third or fourth pick and D'Angelo Russell is the player that's on the board that they like, which apparently they do like him, that would really throw a wrench in the <laughs> current idea of a young core because Rubio is a point guard, Shabazz and Wiggins are wings, and Levine is maybe both. And it's like, all right, whose job is – who's getting traded would be my first question. Yep. So – I don't know. It's it, That's been the big disappointment of this season is that by tanking and having these injuries both, they did not get a chance to develop a team uh, at all. It's just developing these two individuals, Zach Levine and Andrew Wiggins. Anthony Bennett um, is, is kind of we're sort of left with only hope at this point. Uh, he, they're They're going to have to make the decision on his contract based on a lot of upside ideas that we're more than happy to articulate um, and kind of just a little bit of promise he shows every once in a while. But it really was discouraging that he got so out of shape when he had his last injury. So I don't know. Yeah, I think that's all right. And <clears throat> I think we're going to have a lot more to say about um, about the draft, about some of these guys, and, um, and about the thing that we're going to turn to next really briefly which is just uh, one name who is being floated out there um, as a potential future NBA coach, not necessarily a Timberwolves coach, uh, but that, uh, that Bob Volgaris on the, the BS report, I believe, mentioned this week, which is Sean McSweeney. And so I'm uh, admittedly totally unfamiliar with him, so I'm going to pass the mic to you for uh, whatever in-depth research you've done on Sean McSweeney and why Bob Fulgaris, uh, champion NBA gambler, is so high on this guy. Uh, well, you just showed off your your Sean Sweeney artic- uh, your Sean Sweeney <laughs> ignorance by calling him McSweeney, not to be confused with the website or whatever it is, McSweeney's. I claimed to know nothing about him, so <laughs> I feel like I made my point. Yeah, you did. Uh, so Sean Sweeney is uh, the Bucks, according to a, Z- a really good Zach Lowe article on Milwaukee uh, from December 9. I just found this on Google because um, I remember reading it when I remember seeing that. So, and in Sean- the meantime, while you're looking at the stat, I'm just announcing that from now on, if I ever write his name on the blog, I'm going to spell it McSweeney. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I know. I knew you would. I just, yeah, out of principle. Yeah. So anyway, uh, according to Zach Lowe's article on the Bucks, Sean Sweeney is the Bucks defensive coordinator. And Harala Bob Vulgaris identified Sweeney as maybe like the next great defensive innovator in the NBA, which is high praise, not only because Vulgaris follows the NBA and specifically NBA coaching very uh, closely, um, but also just the idea that you're an innovating, innovative individual is a pretty bold statement considering there's only a couple people that come to mind like Popovich and Thibodeau in terms of people who and uh, Dan Tony who have actually had an impact but really what it gets to is this idea of these long versatile switch defenders that Golden State does the same thing but Milwaukee's doing it with a lot of the same types of guys they have the second rated defense in the NBA Sweeney is someone that I played played in scare quotes because I think I was a bench warmer at that point in time but he was at St. Thomas when I was at 
uh, St. Olaf, and I remember him playing, so it's pretty cool that he's kind of an NBA person now. But uh, the Mayak is poorly represented in the NBA, believe it or not. Uh, been a while since Devin George was in the league, so we, we need more tell, Mayak. Tell, so tell us what kind of a player he was and how that might, uh, might bear on what kind of a coach he'd be. Uh, well, he I don't know if it's going to bear on it, but he was just a fiery point guard, and he had a lot of big men at St. Thomas. They typically uh, load their – well, back then they always loaded their roster with a healthy supply of six, nine huge guys, and uh, they usually are the best team in the league. But he was like a freshman playing with seniors, obviously overqualified because I think he also played maybe at Wisconsin Green Bay or somewhere like that, Division One level. But he, he was on St. Thomas when I was at St. Olaf, so – but if he's being called uh, kind of an innovative defensive mind and the Wolves have the worst defense by far in the NBA and he's an up-and-comer who's going to become a head coaching candidate pretty soon probably, I think it only makes sense that the Wolves would be thinking about that kind of thing. I mean, screw the Minnesota connection. I don't even care about that really, but it, that would just be a, something to talk about. But yeah. it, I just be- thought, I mean, and plus, but he's so young. You know, I think he's maybe my age, like low 30s or something. He uh, – he probably would be even open to like doing a stupid like quote unquote coach and waiting thing with Flip, uh, kind of mentoring him because it you know Flip knows how to lead a team and stuff. It probably actually wouldn't be that terrible of an idea for someone so young to get a couple more years under a different head coach because he's under Kid right now. I'm sure Flip is better than Jason Kidd is at like kind of the <laughs> the day to day just like practical you know, tactician stuff, like how do I, or how do I organize a practice? I mean, I have no doubt Flip's great at that stuff. How do behave sort of like a professional NBA coach? Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, uh, name to keep in mind, Sean Sweeney, potentially uh, going to be a head coach in the NBA someday if he's getting the praise that he's getting for Milwaukee's defense now. Uh, that That isn't lost on people. So I'm sure he's building his reputation and some team is going to get him, and uh, I think Timberwolves could use some help on defense, and maybe they'd be smart to be the team to do it. Um, I don't know. I think that about wraps it up. There's just two more games in the season. The Wolves managed to catch the Knicks, or I should say the Knicks caught the Wolves, so they are now tied for the worst records in the NBA. Probably going to both lose out, and so the Wolves will probably have the tied for the worst record for lottery odds and all that stuff. We can We can follow that over the next week to see what it all means. We won't actually know the draft order, though, for, I think, another, like, 30 or 30-plus 30 days. But um, winding this thing down, I'm sure we'll have some sort of season recap post. It won't be as good as they have been in the past just because this season was kind of just taken from us by injuries and also uh, tanking, so it's not as fun to actually discuss the team itself, more the individuals. But anything you have to add? No, there's, there's, yeah, I think still a lot of grist for the mill, like we're talking about here, and it'll be interesting moving forward. So, um, Sean Sweeney, here we come. <laughs> All right, sounds good. Until next time.